I don't think we need to come up with a new modality of government in order to fix this. We have to just recognize more broadly as a country, and I hope we will, um, that you know, you can say that something is a problem, but that doesn't mean that the police are the way to fix it. Welcome back to M-Train. This season, we're looking at the way Muslims have been surveilled and the conversations around abolition. In this episode, we talk with Albert Fox Kahn, a lawyer and the executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, or STOP, on the way local surveillance threatens public safety, equity, and democracy. Hey, everyone. Welcome to M-Train. I'm Ahmed al and I'm joined today by Albert Fox Kahn. Welcome, Albert. Thank you so much for having me. So, Albert, could you tell us a little bit about your work and what STOP is? Yeah, happy to. So I'm a New York-based activist, technologist, civil rights lawyer, and these days I'm the executive director of STOP, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. And we are a group that's trying to abolish mass surveillance at the state and local level, trying to pass new laws uh, up in Albany and at City Hall, trying to sue the NYPD as often as we can. And, you know, before I was a civil rights lawyer, before before I was a technologist, I was a kid very angry at police violence, taking to the streets, opposing it as an activist. And, you know, that activism took a different path after 9-11, where, you know, as a Jewish man who is witnessing the just orchestrated attacks on the Muslim communities by the Department of Homeland Security, by the NYPD, you know, I really took this uh, focus towards Muslim-Jewish interfaith solidarity work. And, and all that brought me to a career uh, in civil rights, uh, increasingly a career in technology-focused civil rights, and for the last three years, a career pushing back on all the dystopian spy tech that is increasingly defining uh, and controlling New York. Well, it's interesting you bring it back to 9-11, um, because growing up as a Muslim in America, young Muslim in America, there was perhaps not a consensus, but a, a majority opinion that perhaps surveillance was actually a necessary thing, that communities where violence could come out of were needed to be surveilled. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege, the distinct honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. Put it bluntly, if the enemy is calling to America, we really need to know what they're saying. And we need to know what they're thinking. And we need to know what, who they're talking to. It's, uh, this is a different kind of struggle that we've ever faced before. This is an opinion that I battled frequently. Um, and of course, the police and the government still argue for their right to surveil. What is your response to that? I mean, it's so enraging because we keep getting this framed as if it's a hard debate. Well, we need to balance civil rights against public safety. That is garbage. The technology doesn't work. The surveillance doesn't work. Pre-crime doesn't work. When we pretend that, oh, the government has a crystal ball to tell you who will do bad things in the future. If you say that about the IRS, if you say that about the DMV, if you say that about any area of government, people will laugh it off. They'll know that it cannot work. But somehow when it comes to the police, to the intelligence apparatus, we believe that they can somehow detect what is in people's minds, you know, months, years ahead of time. 
And instead, what we've gotten from this, you know, systematic surveillance of communities of color, of immigrant communities, and particularly the Masa community, is that we've seen, you know, so many people being targeted, swept up in these dragnets who never posed a threat to anyone. And and we're wasting, you no, know, not millions, but billions of dollars in the process. So it's it's a lose, 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 lose. It's not a hard debate. It's a very easy question. You were alluding to something that I would love to learn more about from you, which is this term of predictive policing. Could you elaborate on what that means and how it's used and its effect on communities? Yeah. So this is one of the most pernicious lies we see in the surveillance software space, that you can use an algorithm to magically predict the future. You can't. So with the predictive policing uh, systems or a variety of them out there, one of the ones that's been best documented is PredPol. With support from the National Science Foundation, a team at UCLA developed PredPol, a set of algorithms for predicting where crimes will occur, much different from traditional policing methods usually employed today. PredPol is a a system that was used, I believe, a bit in New York, but primarily in L.A., and it was using an algorithm that was designed to detect earthquakes, to predict earthquakes, and trying to use that to predict what behaviors human beings would engage in. And so what we do is we have this racist, biased, completely warped arrest data, which bakes in the ways we target communities of color, and then we use that to automate that discrimination and get an algorithm to spit back an objective, in air quotes, picture of where crime will take place in the future. So you're establishing a very dystopian picture. <laughs> Can you talk about some of the the bias that you see baked into the policing structure, even before technology comes to play? You know, we're talking about COINTELPRO. We're talking about stop and frisk. We're talking about a lot of different uh, types of su- surveillance, even physical impacts that are happening on communities before even technology is in- introduced. Yeah, I mean, American policing has been defined by white supremacy and racism for as long as we've had police in America. And it's not just newer technology. It's not just newer forms of surveillance. When you look look at colonial era in New York, we saw lantern laws, which use the technology of the time, simple lanterns, to force, you know, black and brown and uh, enslaved peoples to carry with them a tracking device so they could be seen anytime they left a house after dark. So when you flash forward to, you know, the uh, 20th century, you see quite a lot of work being done on, quote unquote, red squads and black squads. These were designated units within the NYPD and other police departments that were targeting both uh, socialists and other and anarchists and other political dissidents and other economic dissidents, uh, and also explicitly targeting civil rights work within the black community. And, you know, that isn't something that disappeared in the 1920s. It only got worse until we saw, you know, in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, a systematic targeting of civil rights leaders, you know, most famously, you know, J. Edgar Hoover's, you know, wiretapping and and other surveillance of Martin Luther King Jr., you know, these just really grotesque not invasions of his privacy, but also efforts to try to get him to commit suicide. Today we are here to review the major findings of our full investigation of FBI domestic intelligence, including the COINTEL program and other programs aimed at domestic targets. FBI surveillance of law-abiding citizens and groups, 
political abuses of FBI intelligence, and several specific cases of unjustified intelligence operations. The most dramatic testimony today involved the surveillance of Martin Luther King. The committee staffers described in detail attempts to discredit and to destroy King, to try to turn his followers against him, even to find another idol for black Americans. Martin Luther King was and is a national hero to millions, but to J. Edgar Hoover, he was a dangerous man who would wreck the country. Uh, the Bureau went so far as to mail anonymous letters to Dr. King and his wife, which were mailed shortly before he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, and finishes with this suggestion. King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do it. This exact number has been selected for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance. It was 34 days before the award. You are done. That was taken by Dr. King to mean a suggestion for suicide, was it not? That's our understanding. That's how, you know, surveillance powers, policing powers have always been used. It, it's been used to target BIPOC communities. And that's just uh, the surveillance front. And, and you know, in, in New York, we had, you know, just hundreds of thousands of these stopping for uh, stops, you know, throughout, you know, the Giuliani years, throughout the Bloomberg years. And while we, we did roll this back slightly under uh, the de Blasio administration, for every step forward we've taken in curtailing stop and frisk, we've seen two steps back in then having digital stop and frisk through these new surveillance te uh, technologies. So I think there's a lot of focus on policy um, in, when we're talking about surveillance. What are the specific things that the government has argued is their right, argued allows them to keep communities safe? For you and STOP, what is the policy change that you are most focused on? What would the thing that you would like to see most changed nationally? Well, we're a surveillance abolitionist organization. We're trying to completely ban things like facial recognition, ban different forms of biometric surveillance, ban police drones. A lot of these tools, you know, they are just so destructive. They're so error prone. They're so biased. And when they do work, they, you know, are poised to become the perfect tool of authoritarian control. So, you know, with facial recognition, we've seen this growing momentum around the United States, more than two dozen cities and states that have banned the technology. We see growing calls in New York City, both at the city and state level, to ban the scan and outlaw that tech. Well, it's, you know, you, you're, in a way, I, I wanted to get into this conversation about reform versus abolition. So you, you've preempted me here. There's obviously a balance, right? People are being affected by policies. There's a desire to reduce that impact as soon as possible. But then there's also this increasing argument that's saying you can't reform something that is broken, that it must be, you know, as you identified yourself as uh, an abolitionist organization. Where do you see lawyers and legal work existing in an abolitionist framework. I'd love to learn more about that from you. So for me, coming to this work as a privileged white man, like, uh, uh, you know, who is not directly impacted by the technology, structural accountability is is key. So setting up a community advisory board that oversees all of our policy decisions, oversees all of our litigation, and make sure, makes sure that we are actually serving communities and not just speaking to communities. Uh, so that was one of the things that I think is indispensable for effective lawyering in this space. Coalition work, partnership work, not simply trying to say what communities should want, 
which has often been the approach that you know incumbent you know uh, civil rights groups have taken in this space. But really having a a full partnership with community-based organizations. I think that even though our goal is complete abolition of these technologies, there are times when you know our advisory board, our partners still think that an incremental win is worth is worth fighting for because there are still incremental wins that can create more momentum towards lasting abolition of these technologies than they create a risk of normalization. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit in more detail, like some of those conversations where you kind of had to maybe make make the shift towards this incremental win because it was so important to the communities you're serving. Could you give us an example of that? So, I mean, one of the most, you know, high profile pieces of legislation I've worked on has been the POST Act, the Public Oversight of Surveillance Technology Act. This is a bill that required the NYPD to, for the first time in its history, disclose what spy tools it was using and how the data was being shared. You know, it is just a transparency measure. So it is something that, you know, was never seen as more than a first step towards the, uh, you know, elimination of these systems. And so this is something where, given the political realities, given the legislative realities, the, the fact that our city council is weaker than the city councils in a lot of other jurisdictions, you know, that was something where, even though it was never going to be complete, it was something that was seen as a, an incremental win that would be helpful. So much to talk about there. But I, I would also, I think it's worth stepping back a little bit and and talking about the scale of the NYPD, um, what kind of organization it is. I mean, it's, it's massively inf- funded and influential in terms of the conversations around um, national approaches to policing and their usage of surveillance has also been influential, I think. So can you talk about the... Give us just a little bit of a broader picture of the institution and how surveillance became a part of their toolkit that they started using and investing in so heavily. I mean, the NYPD is the largest non-federal paramilitary organization in the United States. It is by far the largest police force, you know, orders of magnitude larger than the vast majority. Uh, And beyond just simply having numbers, it has increasingly been viewed as the gold standard in American policing, a claim that I think would be laughable if it weren't so painfully tragic to to so many of the New Yorkers who have to actually interact with the NYPD. You know, New York has become sort of the testing ground for so many new surveillance tools, you know, in the last 20 years since 9-11. You know, we've seen systems developed here uh, through NYPD partnerships like the Real-Time Crime Center, a joint partnership with Microsoft that aggregates thousands of camera feeds, um, Metro card data, uh, data from uh, the Department of Transportation, nearly every other city agency into this intelligence nerve center that would have, you know, revolted George Orwell if he had lived to actually see something like this come to life. You once claimed that you have an ability to face unpleasant facts. Is that what you've demonstrated in 1984 by drawing an accurate portrait of the future? I think that allowing for the book being, after all, a parody, something like 1984 could actually happen. This is the direction the world is going in at the present time. In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph and self-abasement. 
there will be no loyalty except loyalty to the party. But always there will be the intoxication of power. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. When I think about the deep scars and effects of discriminatory surveillance on American communities, I think about how black activists and civil rights activists have been infiltrated by informants and, um, you know, had disinformation spread amongst them. Now I'm thinking about Black Lives Matter organizations and how this kind of story of COINTELPRO is now kind of repeating itself with Black Lives Matter. Could you talk a little bit about that, this modern moment in surveillance of what really is things that should be protected under free speech and, and you know, political organizing are, are being surveilled by the government? And what, what are we seeing there? I, I'm having flashbacks as you talk about this, thinking about to the back to the protests I went to as a teenager where you would have members of TARU, the Technical Assistance Response Unit, I think that's the acronym, showing up with camcorders and just recording the face of everyone at that demonstration. And certainly within the Black community, there is a horrific history of Black political engagement being criminalized, being systematically targeted. You know, we saw the FBI continue to use the label black identity extremism, something that sounds like a throwback to Jim Crow America in case files up until, you know, the you know current day. They continue to target, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters as a threat and not as a reckoning for injustice. You know, here in New York, we represent Amnesty International in litigation to figure out just how the NYPD surveilled BLM protesters back in 2020. It's been nearly two years and we're still fighting in court just to find out how this historic moment of dissent was being treated by the police officers who are being held to account, but who in fact were simply criminalizing that dissent. Because we know that for every officer that's actually being sent undercover to infiltrate a group, they're probably are hundreds or thousands of efforts to use different forms of electronic surveillance to track protesters. Already we've seen examples of everything from drones to geofence warrants, which track the cell phone data of everyone in a protest, to ring doorbell cameras uh, having their footage given, and just basically every part of the surveillance apparatus that we you know, installed in the name of supposedly combating terrorism, once again, being used to combat those who would speak out against injustice. Let's talk about some of that practical advice that you give to these communities. We have listeners who are of those affected communities and and, and share these fears in a typical sort of cybersecurity training module that you might give to activists or maybe mosques. Um, I, I'm not sure how wide-ranging your, your, your um, tool set is. What are some of the tips that like an average person who might have that concern? Part of our model is to really look at every individual's threat assessment as being unique because we all have different you know, uh, risk tolerance. We all have different uh, degrees of threat. We do have a protest surveillance toolkit at stopspying.org slash protest. And for people who wonder about how 
best to document action. We actually uh, partnered with Protest NYC to put together a protest reporting toolkit. So from a community perspective, being within the Muslim community, I think we expect the government to surveil us. <laughs> it's become natural almost um, in a way. But there was other two other stories that I wanted to just get your take on real quick before our last few minutes here. One was an earlier one, which was the Muslim Pro story that this basically prayer app was selling location information and, and some of the uh, the data uh, that Muslims were using to basically figure out when to pray and, and, and where to pray. Um, this was being sold to some government agencies. You know, as somebody who focuses on technology specifically, what was your sort of reaction to that? What was what were some of the takeaways that you had from that story? From a community perspective, it really felt like nothing is safe. You know, if the thing that you your your prayer app is 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 surveilling you, like really, what can we trust? I think was a was it was a, a big takeaway. It was very devastating for I think for a lot of people to know that. I mean the number of people who reached out to me personally asking, well what what app can I use? Can I use this website? What can I do? And and just you know, that is so incredibly chilling. I mean, to me, you know, to have, I think it was in the end, more than 90 million uh, individuals' records being sold by X mode to the U.S. Air Force, having that being done without any, without just the complete freedom to buy everyone's data with even less oversight than when you get a warrant, which we already saw was like a, a, such a low standard to start. It, it just was it set off alarm bells. I mean, and, you know, we actually have helped introduce the first bill in the country that would ban the sort of police uh, purchase of data. We, you know, working with Senator Zellner Myrie of Brooklyn and Assemblymember Dan Quirt of Manhattan, we've been fighting to get this bill through that would say that police cannot, you know, circumvent our civil rights by simply paying, you know, these uh, vendors for our data. We can't put the onus on individuals to figure out what app is possibly going to be putting their family's location history into drone targeting data. Like it, it we can't. And, and so, you know, that's why I think, you know, we, we need to outlaw that practice. And I'm hopeful this year that New York will move forward and actually pass this. And beyond that, we'll make it a, a model for the rest of the country. And, and, you know, just make it clear that, you know, you cannot purchase location data, full stop. I think the other surprise for the Muslim community was the reveal that the CARE Columbus branch had a executive board member who was giving information to what essentially amounted to a anti-Muslim organization. We have some other news to get to this morning. This involves uh, a local group that's really been in the news for raising awareness about its mission. Yes, yeah, so the leader of the Columbus Cincinnati Council on American Islamic Relations has now been let go from that position. We want to get to Karina Nova, who's here in the studio, with more on why the organization says they had to make this decision. And, Karina, more on what they say was discovered. Uh, yeah, that's right. The Ohio chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations, Ohio, says they fired the executive and legal director, Roman Iqbal, for allegedly leaking information to an anti 
anti-Muslim hate group. The group says he was let go after committing egregious ethical and professional violations. The release states that CARES National Headquarters conducted a forensic investigation conducted by an independent third-party expert and found conclusive evidence that Iqbal had spent years secretly recording CARE Network meetings. According to CARE, Iqbal then passed confidential information regarding CARE's national advocacy work to a known anti-Muslim hate group. Any thoughts there? Like, what can we learn from that? Also another despondent moment, I think, for American Muslims because the idea that, you know, we might not always trust the institutions that claim to represent us, but the idea that they could be doing something as heinous as selling, like an individual could be selling information to people who truly hate Muslims was also really shocking and stunning. It's awful, right? Because what could be more destructive to the ability to come together as a community than a constant fear that anytime you're connecting genuinely with another human being, that it's malicious, that it's you know deceptive, that it's they're they're there to 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 track you, not to actually, you know, be a part of your community. And and I think that, you know, this is part of why we need to actually you know, start to outlaw a lot of these undercover operations. These sorts of practices just have systematically failed to actually provide a meaningful intelligence. And yet at the same time, they're so profoundly destructive to just people's mental health, to people's sense of community, and to creating a, a space where people can feel like they truly belong. Well, on that optimistic note. <laughs> <laughs> but we can win. <laughs> Albert, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find some resources from your work from Stop um, that where they if they want to lear- learn more about your work or or how to protect themselves? Yes, uh, well, you can uh, find our reports, our privacy toolkits, and all of those uh, documents on our website, stopspying.org. Uh, you know, we have the protest toolkit, the protest reporting toolkit. We have a number of different toolkits on different privacy threats that people uh, face. And then, you know, you can also follow us on the uh, horrifying, privacy-destroying social media platform of your choice at uh, Stop Spying NY, or um, my personal uh, uh, Twitter account and, uh, is FoxCon, F-O-X-C-A-H-N. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again. M-Train is a six-part audio series hosted by me, Amadal Yakbar, and produced by Shereen Barghi. It is edited by Kareem Duadi. Our executive producers are Kai Youngblood and Charlie Hoxie. Follow Brick on Twitter and Instagram at BrickTV and follow me at RadBrownDads. This episode featured music composed by Kareem Dawadi. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges Program. For more information on this and all Brick TV content, visit brickartsmedia.org slash bricktv. I'm Amadal Yakbar. Thanks for listening.